Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. You may have noticed there are a few empty chairs kind of showing up on during first service. And that's because some of your first service buddies have moved to third service. <laughs> No, I appreciate that, because what that does is it opens up some seats here for first hour this morning, so you now have more room to invite people to hear about Jesus. Amen? So I encourage you to keep doing that. Don't forget to do that. You know, it seems like there came a time in the church where it was a little bit passe to invite people to church. You know, we'll talk about Jesus, we'll talk about a relationship with Jesus, but I don't know about the whole inviting people to church thing. Invite them. Bring them. They will see worship, they will hear the Word of God, and... uh, only the Lord knows what He will accomplish in those in those times, those opportunities. So we want to keep seeing the body grow. And again, not for ourselves, but for the sake of the salvation of people who don't know the Lord as we do here this morning. Let's pray, and we'll get into this amazing study this morning. Fathers, Brian just was sharing Isaiah 53, that that amazing prophecy of the suffering servant. And as Isaiah would later talk about the great and glorious King, and that you, Jesus, fulfill both, coming as the suffering servant and coming again as we wait for you as our glorious and lifted up King, we know that at a certain point, you had to just come. And Father, for all the attacks on Christmas out there, the world still stops. Our country still celebrates. Maybe with some confusion, maybe it's watered down, but Father, I thank You that this time of year comes around when people do pause and where the birth of Jesus is still talked about. How remarkable. Lord, if my birth is talked about ten years after my death, it will be an amazing thing. But here we are 2,000 years later and people still think about that night in Bethlehem. People still sing the songs. People still go to church this time of year just to hear the story again. And I just pray, Lord, that in this season that You will encourage and draw out faith that people think they're going to hear a nice old story, I pray, Father, that faith would emerge. Whether here in the barn or in churches throughout this area, anywhere the name of Jesus is preached, Father, I pray that those who have no faith or little faith would find themselves believing. And through believing in Jesus come to a a saving knowledge of the grace of God. And I pray this morning as we look at these things and consider this ancient prophecy, 2,700, 2,750 years old or so now, that Lord, we recognize the immediate uh, pertinence of it in our lives. And that we, Lord, would come to this story with faith. Bless the fellowship this morning as we hear your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is that time of year. My dad loves to butcher a good song. <laughs> it's what he does. 
And he will sometimes call me up, even to this day. I remember this as a kid, but even to this day, he'll call up and, hello, and I'll hear on the other side of the line, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. (laughs) And it just cracks me up. That song, I remember singing that song for the first time, learning it at O'Neill Elementary School when I was a kid, probably third, fourth grade in in the school chorus, and we sang that. I loved it. I loved it. I learned it and I sang. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas up and down Saddleback Drive in Mission Viejo, California, walking to and from school barefoot in the snow. You know the story. It was a tragic tale of upbringing. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I mean, to me as a kid, that was just, that, that was like pouring, you know, gasoline on a flame. It was so exciting. And I, I still envisioned the season coming, you know, those, those signs of Christmas. I remember the street I lived on, Saddleback Drive, and I remember Christmas wreaths would begin to appear on the doors. And those lead-painted light bulbs, you know, the big honking ones that, that explode when you throw them? Yeah, I don't know why I know that, but, but those would then to be strung on homes. And, and people would put scenes out, and there would be manger scenes in front yards. And, and, all, and the, thickest, the thickest Sears catalog of the year would come in the mail. I just loved it. And I knew Christmas was coming because of all the signs. Well, this morning I want to talk about the first sign of Christmas, if you will, uh, so to speak. The first sign of the first Christmas, hardly noticed at the time, save for a young couple, you know, a handful of shepherds, some wise guys, you know. The first sign, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. There it is. The first sign of Christmas. But after 700 plus years for this this prophecy to, to sink in, not many are watching. Not many paying attention. And today, this simple and yet potent prophecy, along with Isaiah 53, which is interesting, Brian, that you read that, along with Isaiah 53, Isaiah 7.14 is one of the most scrutinized, criticized, and undermined verses in all of Scripture. We come to this amazing little prophecy, and it, it has been picked at and reinterpreted and challenged again and again and again. It shouldn't surprise us that this verse should come under attack. Because you see, what the Lord speaks prophetically through His prophet is an an absolutely essential element of Christian faith. If you don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you got a hole in your faith. At best. You're on shaky ground. And so, because this is such an absolutely essential element of our faith in Jesus Christ and who He is and where He come from, came from and how He came into the world, it's, it's no surprise that it's attacked. And you can find this throughout Scripture anytime there's something that's a basis for faith, something we truly look at and say, you really need to believe in this to, to know Jesus. These are the areas of Scripture that people go after, invariably. 
Well, that sounds a little paranoid, Rick, like there's a big concerted effort. Absolutely there is. And his name is Satan. And every generation, he tries to get an effort against those passages, those prophecies, those biblical truths that could undermine faith. It's what he does. So here we are at Isaiah 7.14, and, and he does this. Liberal scholars... Critics of the Bible, anyone who denies the actual supernatural intervention of God into the natural world, they're going to have a problem with this verse. Annually, it comes under fire every season. It's as common now as Xmas cards. I love that. I I prefer Christ X cards. If you're going to cross anything out of Christmas, cross out the mass. Just go with with Christ. It's as empty-headed as season's greetings. Season's greetings. I'm going to start saying that in the summertime. I am. That's going to be my new thing. Hey, season's greetings. It's not Christmas. No, but it's the season of summer. I'm talking about doubts and denials and disputes of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. If you call yourself a Christian, belief in the virgin birth of Jesus is a non-negotiable. This is truth. This is what the Bible expresses as absolute truth. In the Gospel account of the birth of Jesus, Matthew wrote in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14. Which Matthew says translated means God with us. Which is right. Emmanuel, God is with us. So today I want to I want to deal with this head on. Let's let's listen to and answer the critics. Let's take a moment and and answer the questions that are thrown out there. I'm going to give you four main ideas and a bunch of little sub ideas. So follow along with me. First of all, let's look at the basis of this prophecy. Where did this come from? This whole idea of the virgin birth, where is it set in Scripture? Consider the background with me for a moment. Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 7. It says, It came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Yotam, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pikachu, the son of Remaliah... I'm sorry, it's Pika. I call him Pikachu. Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. What's going on? Historical background. Rezin, who was the king of Aram, the Arameans, where part of Syria today is, uh, Aram and, um, and Assyria were the two areas that is now Assyria today. So Rezin, he makes an alliance with Pekah, Chu, the king of Israel. So you got Pekah in the northern Israel, over the northern ten tribes in the kingdom of Israel. Remember the kingdom split, there's a southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. So Pekah is up there, he's the king at the time. Rezin, who is up there, actually from your perspective would have been over this way. Rezin comes, he makes uh, uh, an alliance with Pekah, and the two of them are allied against Assyria, because Assyria is starting to get scary. Starting to get big and threatening, and so they make an alliance together, and they are trying to get Judah to make an alliance with them so that they'll have all three of these kingdoms allied against Assyria. And Judah will have nothing of it. Ahaz won't make that alliance. In fact, Ahaz goes a completely different direction. Ahaz is a practical politician, he's what you might call an appeaser. He chose to be on the side of Assyria. Because Assyria was the more powerful. 
We're talking about Ahaz down in Judah, God's country there. And he wants to ally himself with Assyria, and he does it through kowtowing and paying tribute. So Rezin and Pekah, they get together, bring their armies together, and they go down against Judah. They decide, we've got to force this kingdom's hand because we need this on our side. So they go down there to terrorize Judah and to perhaps unseat Ahaz and put a puppet king on the throne in Judah so that they can have this alliance that they're looking for. There's your background, verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, Ephraim being northern Israel. And note that a lot of times Ephraim is the kind of the catch name for the kingdom of Israel in the north. So they, the Arameans have camped in, the, in Ephraim. His heart, that is Ahaz's heart, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now. Out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Yashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Interesting. God says, okay, Isaiah, Ahaz is scared to death because of this alliance that's coming against him. I need you to go talk to him. I want you to do a couple of things, though. First of all, I want you to take your son, Shir Yashub, with you. Well, why is that, Lord? You may recall, Shir Yashub means a remnant shall return. His son was a prophetic sign, the firstborn of Isaiah, a prophetic sign to Israel that a remnant of the Jews would be spared, would survive. So he says, take Shir Yashub with you. Perhaps Ahaz will remember what his name means, what he stands for, and will be encouraged. But why is the Lord sending him to meet at the fuller's field? You notice that? Verse 3, meet him on the highway to the fuller's field. Why there? The Fuller's Field was situated on the western side of Jerusalem where there was a large pool. In fact, it's still there today. It's called Hezekiah's Pool. The Fuller's. The Fuller's Field. The Hebrew word is kabas. And kabas literally means the washer's field. The Fuller's. These were the dry cleaners of Jerusalem. If you had to have laundry done, this is where it was done. Drop off your stuff at the Fuller's Field. And there was soap and washing that went on there, and people had actually that business there. In that place of washing, God sends Isaiah and his son, a remnant, shall return to meet with Ahaz in the place of washing. Interesting. Perhaps the Lord was signifying a clean start for Isaiah. I'm I'm with you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. Now, granted... We're able to look back 2,700 years. We have a little bit of Bible study behind us and some years. And so we can look at these two signs, Shir Yashub, the remnant, and the washer's field, the fuller's field being this picture of washing and cleansing. And we can say, okay, I I see those signs. That's interesting. But Ahaz, how could he have known that? I mean, these two enigmatic signs would require, well, they would require faith. They'd require faith. God often spoke in signs speaks in signs. Jesus taught in parables. Why? To pull faith out of people. These things require some sense of faith. Hold that thought. This was something Ahaz was greatly lacking. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of who? Anyone know? The unbelievers. If you want to see, you have to believe. 
And God has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, which is why it's so frustrating for you. At Christmas time, you're with family around the tree and someone brings up religion and you start to talk and you try to talk about Jesus, but it's not getting through. It's because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Well, great, Pastor, what do I do? You pray before you go around the tree. You pray before you head into the family situation. You ask the Lord supernaturally to lift the veil long enough for them to hear you talk about Jesus. I think the problem is we go into these situations far too often without any supernatural help or without at least asking for it. God, would you open their eyes to hear what we may talk about this evening? Keep that in mind. And if you don't have faith, according to Paul, Satan's got you. He's got hold of you. He will do everything in his depraved power to keep you from seeing the signs. And so Ahaz, he's not going to get that Shir Yashub is there. He's not going to understand their meeting here at the Fuller's Field. He's going to miss these things. Verse 4, the Lord says to Isaiah, he says, say to him, take care and be calm. That's what Isaiah is supposed to tell Ahaz. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin of Aram and the son of Remaliah. I love that. God won't even name Pekah. Won't even use his name, the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you. Don't worry about it. Relax. They said, verse 6, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabilah's king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Quote, Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it's no longer a people. Parentheses there. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, surely you will not last. What's he talking about here? Well, again, these two kings are coming down. They're going to try and terrorize you. Don't be afraid. By the way, terrorism is not a new idea in the Middle East. They were after them. They were coming down. And he says to Ahaz and Judah, do not be afraid. Don't worry about this. In fact, I'm going to tell you what's about to happen here. So you don't need to worry about these two, I love it, smoldering firebrands. These two guys who are about to go out. That's what the Lord is saying. This meeting took place in 734 B.C. 734 B.C., Isaiah met Ahaz at the Fuller's Field with a word from the Lord. In verse 8 of the chapter, the Lord declares a 65-year countdown for Ephraim, that is, Israel. 65 years from now, he says, Ephraim will be shattered. Okay, so in 734 B.C., Isaiah tells Ahaz. In 732 B.C., two years later, Assyria captured Damascus and Rezin was killed. That firebrand went out. 2 Kings 16.9 tells us. In 722 B.C., Assyria conquered Samaria in northern Israel, the cap- capital there. And the brutal captivity of, captivity of Israel began, 2 Kings 17, verses 4-6 through 6 tells us. But it wasn't until 669 B.C. that Assyria, finally getting sick and tired of little mini-uprisings, finally wiped out northern Israel completely. 669 B.C., replacing Samaria with foreign colonists brought in from other conquered nations. That's, that's what Assyria would do. 
conquer nations, bring in slaves, conquer a nation over here, and take these slaves and put them over here to colonize so they would lose their national identity as well as the people of the nation they conquered. 669 B.C. that happened, exactly 65 years after Isaiah spoke this prophecy, exactly as the Lord foretold, Israel was shattered. It's amazing about Isaiah is not only does he give prophecies that will come true 750 years later, 2,000 years, 2,700 years, we're still looking at these things. Not only would he give long-term prophecy, but he gave short-term prophecy that was fulfilled right before the eyes of the kings of Judah if they would look, if they would have their eyes open. Moses said that's the test of the prophet, by the way. If what he says comes true, he's a prophet. If what he says doesn't come true, don't believe him. Pretty simple. So 65 years later... Israel was shattered. But listen, in all of this, what's happening there at the Fuller's Field is Isaiah is bringing a message from the Lord to Ahaz and the Lord requires one thing of Ahaz. One thing. It's all he's asking. Faith. Faith. End of verse 9. If you will not believe, surely you will not last. Faith, Ahaz. I want faith. He is saying to Ahaz, will you believe me? I'm telling you right now, here's what's going to happen. I'm telling you, don't be afraid. Will you believe me? And he looks, the Lord does, at Ahaz. And he sees this king of Judah waffling. And he reads the doubt in his face. He must, because the Lord then reaches even further. Verse 10, the Lord again spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself. From the Lord your God, make it as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Okay, now wait a minute. (laughs) God's just told you, ask for a sign to prove that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. What would you say? A sign. Okay. Cool. I want to wake up in the morning with my house repainted. (laughs) You know, I would be creative. I'd like to get in my car and fly to the store. (laughs) Ask for a sign. Listen, God said, anything you want, Ahaz. Make it as deep as hell, as high as heaven. Anything you want. Just to prove to you, I will do as I said. God says, ask for it. And I will provide proof for you. And Ahaz, rather than coming up with a sign, rather than saying, okay, make, make the shadows of the day go backward, as, as Hezekiah would say. Do something. Okay, I'm going to put out a fleece and, 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 and make the dew on the ground, but make the fleece itself dry, as Gideon had said. I mean, they had examples of this type of thing before. No, no. <laughs> I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. How many of you are like that? I'm not going to ask the Lord to do anything because what if He doesn't? I'm not going to ask the Lord to heal me because what if it doesn't happen? Oh no! Then where will my faith be? So I'm just not going to ask. That's the wrong approach. The right approach is to ask in faith saying your will be done. I believe you for your truth, Lord. I'm asking you for healing in this situation. But your will be done. And if the healing comes, praise the Lord. And if He has a different plan, praise the Lord. But ask. Ask. Ahaz refuses to do so. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Verse 13. Then he said, as the Lord's response to this lack of faith, Listen now, O house of David, 
Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Now the critic argues this prophecy cannot be of Jesus because it's a sign given to Ahaz who would never see Jesus. That's the context. That's the basis for your little Christmas prophecy there, you Christians. You're pulling something out of context. Why would God offer or prophesy? Why would Isaiah teach something 700 years out as a sign to this king Ahaz? That's a great question. Here's the answer. He didn't. What? He didn't offer this as a sign to Ahaz. Look at what it says. Verse 13. Listen now, O house of David. Not listen now, Ahaz. Alright, Ahaz, you won't ask for a sign. I'm going to give you one. In 700 years, a woman's going to get pregnant. No one's going to know how. And that baby's going to come and he will be God with us. It's not what he says. He doesn't say it to Ahaz. He says it to the house of David. What are you saying, Rick? Listen, Ahaz was given a chance for an immediate sign and he blew it off. So God went ahead and gave an astounding sign to the house of David. A sign that he would not desert the house of David. A sign that the line of David would continue even for idiot kings like Ahaz who refuses to have faith, yeah, there are going to be some some of those along the line. But I will fulfill my promise, O house of David. This is a profound confirmation of Israel's preservation. Do you understand? He's saying to the house of David, the line of David, the tribe of Judah, the people of Israel, I'm going to give you a sign that's going to remain across the next 700 years. You're going to see this verse. You're going to think through these words of Isaiah. And this sign is going to come and it will be proof. What's remarkable to me, it's not proof of Christmas for Christians. It's proof of the preservation of Israel for Jewish people. First and foremost, I'm going to give you a sign. This epic sign was the birth of a child to a virgin. And the basis of this prophecy, the basis of it is faith. Because Ahaz had no faith for it, it would require the same faith the Lord asked Ahaz for, for the Jewish people to buy it when it happened 700 years later. The virgin birth of Jesus does require some faith, because biologically we can't figure that one out. How did it happen? Now let's see if we can wrap our minds and our hearts a little bit more around this amazing prophecy. In verse 14 it tells us, Behold... A woman will be with child and will bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. So the basis for the prophecy is this conversation that Isaiah has with Ahaz. And you've you got the historical background. Here's the blessed event. Number two, the blessed event. Now one of the first ways critics will attempt to undermine the sign of Emmanuel is to question the virgin issue. Question the virginity of the young woman. Three things to note. Subpoints. First of all, this is a virgin. This is a virgin. That's one of the first words critics will go after. Behold, a virgin will be with child. And they are quick to point out that the word virgin in the Hebrew can also mean maiden. A maiden will be with child. Interesting. 
That's because of the assumption that a, maid, a maiden would be a virgin, but they're saying it was just an assumption. She didn't have to be a virgin, so it could be maiden. What's the Hebrew word? The Hebrew word is alma. You might jot that down in, in the notes there in your Bible or, or in, the, in the margin there. The Hebrew word is alma, and it means a young, unmarried woman of good reputation. That's, that's the understanding of the meaning of the word alma. That's why they say, well, it also means maiden. Yeah, it means a young woman. But it means a young woman who's unmarried. It means a young woman who has a good reputation. It comes from the verb, and this is interesting, Alma comes from the verb alam, which means to hide or to conceal, which is an appropriate way to indicate the nature of virginity. You know, something that's hidden and, and concealed, not, not opened up to a husband in the marital setting. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but note this. This is the only word in Hebrew in the Old Testament, the only word in Hebrew that is used for virgin and only for virgin. There are other words. There are other words that are used for a young woman, a maiden, that that can be used interchangeably. But the word Alma, it's used nine times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Alma. Eight out of the nine times, it is absolutely and explicitly and unquestionably a virgin. Eight out of the nine times. The ninth time is right here in Isaiah 7.14. Everywhere else it talks about a virgin. And right here where it says virgin, well, right here it means virgin. Because that's what it's always meant. And it wasn't until the critics came along and began trying to chew at this prophecy that the word virgin was even questioned for its own meaning. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But first of all, that this is a virgin. But understand, secondly, this is a sign. It's a sign. The Hebrew word ot means miraculous. I'm going to show you something supernatural. The same word is used of the sign of the rainbow that was given to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to give you a sign. Something supernatural. Now, no offense, ladies and especially young moms. What's miraculous about a young woman getting pregnant? Follow my line of reasoning. If she's just a maiden, behold, a maiden will be with child and will bear a son. Well, if it's just a maiden, what's, what's, what's the big deal about it? It happens all the time. No offense, ladies. I know when the child's born, everybody goes, Oh, it's a miracle. No, it's not. It's biology, man. <laughs> And it happens every single day. And I know he looks like a miracle to you, but to me he looks like a lizard. <laughs> like Bill Cosby said, they were cleaning him off and he just wasn't getting any cleaner. <laughs> this is a sign. This is something that doesn't usually happen. Maidens give birth to babies every single day. So the very context of this verse is that this is something miraculous, something unusual, something supernatural. By the way, the New Testament writers all translate the Hebrew word Alma into the Greek word Parthenos, which means virgin. That's the translation all the New Testament writers use. Which, you know, it's a woman who's never been with a man. And by the way, that's what Mary said to the angel Gabriel when she found out that she was pregnant. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Gabriel said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am Parthenos? I'm a virgin. It's not possible. 
Oh, but it's a sign. It's a miraculous sign. Christmas story didn't begin in Bethlehem. It was proclaimed by Isaiah 700 years earlier. First sign of Christmas. Of course, it didn't really begin there either. you got to go back a little bit further. Genesis <laughs> chapter 3, verse 15, in what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. God is cursing Satan. You Bible students know this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God says that to Satan. And what happened? Jesus will crush Satan's authority, crush his head, but Satan would bruise his heel. Nails would go right through his feet. Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the Gospel, is when God said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. Her seed. It's the only time in all of ancient literature that a woman is ever referred to as having a seed because the woman carries the egg, not the seed. So in the very beginning we have this, this indication of something miraculous. Isaiah comes along and he speaks it again. This is exactly what we heard back in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to tell you again, a woman who is a virgin will be with child and it's going to be a sign to you. This is how you know God is with us. This is how you know He's come into the world because it's going to begin with something that's impossible with man. But with God all things are possible. Amen? Amen. So this is a a virgin. This is a sign. And thirdly, note this, this is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which again Matthew tells us means God is with us. You don't call the average child Emmanuel. At least not not back then. Lots of moms think when they're pregnant that their child's going to be little Emmanuel until they're born. And they think, boy, we really probably should have named him, you know, Satan or something like that. (laughs) Might have fit better. You know, that's what Eve thought, by the way. Eve thought when she got pregnant and she was carrying Cain, she says, behold... I have gotten a man, the Lord. That's the literal translation of what she says. I've gotten a man, the Lord, or by the Lord. She thought that this was a miracle birth, that her firstborn Cain was going to be the one God said is going to bruise Satan. He's the one who's going to take him out. Didn't turn out so well, did it? Cain actually went more the direction of Satan than against. And. Our kids have been doing it ever since. Anyway, Isaiah himself obviously understood this prophecy to be messianic. He expands on it in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. He will do it again in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at both those passages in coming weeks here. In fact, these three passages, you might note this, Isaiah 7, 9, and 11. These three are companion passages, prophecies of Jesus' divine and miraculous birth and His nature. In fact, look over at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. should be familiar to many of you. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on His shoulders and His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, I want to talk about this. We'll save that. I'll do that on Christmas Eve, okay? We'll talk about that verse. 
get into that and think through that. Isaiah obviously understood this. These names, along with Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, all of these names together are designations of Messiah's divine character. That He would be God with us. And for those who question whether or not Jesus was truly God, or a lesser form of God, which He is not, He is God in the flesh, God with us. If you question that, all you got to do is go back to Isaiah and spend some time there. Isaiah said the child will be called Mighty God. You can't get around that one. Well, yeah, but maybe just... Uh, okay, how about, how about this? He will be called Eternal Father. Does that make some sense out of Jesus saying, I and the Father are one? I'm called Eternal Father. <laughs> it's me. And John said in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. The Word that was God became flesh. Dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying Emmanuel is too big a name for any child. It's just too big. I love the cartoon Clark Donald sent it to me the other day. Perhaps you've seen it, a bunch of camels riding along, and there are women on each of the camel, and you're kind of behind the women as they're riding toward, it's, I think it's supposed to be Bethlehem, and there are bumper stickers on the back of each of the camels. <laughs> and on the one camel it says, my daughter's an honor student, and on the other camel it says, my son is in medical school. And one of the women on the cam- camels over here looks over and sees a third woman, and she says, oh, hey, how you doing, Mary? And on the back of her camel it says, my son is God. <laughs> Put that on your car, you know. (laughs) My son is God. This is a sign, gang. This is a virgin, unquestionably. And this is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, a few people have had some trouble with the next two verses that follow the Emmanuel prophecy in verse 14. Look at verse 15 of Isaiah 7. He, speaking of Emmanuel, will eat curds and honey... Okay, no problem there. At the time, he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. What? If he's God, then wouldn't he already know evil and good? And what's this about him knowing enough to... For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings are you dread will be forsaken. I, I struggle with that. What does that mean? Come back Wednesday night. We're going to talk about that. I'll explain it then. Now, now see, I always do that to the Wednesday night people. I always make them wait till Sunday. Well, you can wait till Wednesday. <laughs> now shift gears with me for just a minute here. I actually talked about something three Christmases ago. I want to revisit having to do with this idea of Emmanuel. We've talked about the basis of the prophecy and the blessed event itself. Here's the big idea. Number three, the big idea. Watch this. Three things to jot down and think through. About the virgin birth, number one, the virgin birth tells us That Jesus is singular. Virgin birth tells us Jesus is singular. There is none like Him. There's no one. There there is no one in all of eternity, in all of existence, who is, was, or ever will be exactly like Jesus. He is absolutely unique, absolutely singular. And this idea of Jesus' singularity, His uniqueness, reveals the supernatural fusion of the divine and the human. That a child will be born to us and we'll call Him God with us. Jesus is singular. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 
justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Jesus is singular. His humanity, His divinity. Secondly, the virgin birth reveals not only is Jesus singular, but Jesus is spotless. Absolutely spotless. Now follow this through, because I think this is cool. His blood is absolutely pure, untainted by humanity. We talk about that in a spiritual sense. I'm talking even in a physical sense. The blood of Jesus Christ was absolutely pure, and we desperately need that. We need one with pure blood. Because our blood is polluted. And our blood is tainted. And our blood is messed up and corrupted by sin. Even David understood that. Psalm 51.5, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He wasn't saying that his parents were sinners. He was saying, hey, I was born into this world and the entire bloodline of humanity is corrupt. And my blood is tainted now. No wonder I choose bad things. I've got a corrupt bloodline. Hmm. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And he was talking about the blood sacrifice. That's why God originally had him sacrifice animals. To start to get into the mind of man that understanding that there had to be a pure blood sacrifice. And it could not be the blood of sinful man. And so they used animals, which was a covering. Because animals outside of that, I mean, not perfect, by any stretch, but animals don't know right from wrong. So I'm going to give you this as a sign and example, but one is coming whose blood would be perfect. Now listen, someone might say, well, if Jesus was born of God and Mary, what about her blood? Wouldn't he then be tainted as a human being? One of many reasons the Bible never declares Mary to be anything more than human. So Mary's connection in this whole thing does pose a problem. Because she is human. And she is not divine. And therefore she is a sinner and she's his mom. Well, check this out. If you know anything about gestational biology, babies in the womb never draw from the mother's blood. In fact, a child's circulatory system is completely separate from the mother's circulatory system. Jesus' blood came about, gang, by the supernatural work of the spotless Holy Spirit of His Heavenly Father. The blood of Jesus was never tainted by humanity. Therefore, even physically speaking, the blood of Jesus, absolutely pure. Spotless. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Him. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. It's another reason it had to be a virgin birth. Because if it wasn't, the blood of Christ would have been tainted. But it was a virgin birth. And the virgin birth shows us, shows us a spotless Jesus and a singular Jesus. And the virgin birth shows us that Jesus is absolutely sufficient. Anyone know what Jesus' blood type was? I know. It's type A. For all, sufficient. <laughs> Covers every one. His perfect blood is acceptable as a transfusion for every single person of all nations, of all races, of all the earth. 
Hebrews 9.22 tells us almost all things by the law are, are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there's no remission. By the way, the Hebrew writer doesn't say there's no remission of sin. He says by the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, period. I think that's interesting. Because we use the word remission when we're not talking spiritually. We use the word remission to talk about, I don't know, medical stuff like cancer. What happens when cancer goes into remission? It stops dead in its tracks, right? It ceases to continue forward. It can't continue to propagate and and kill and destroy cells. It's in remission. It has been stopped. Only the power of Jesus' blood brings my sin into remission so that it is stopped. Not only does the blood of Jesus bring me forgiveness spiritually for the sins committed, but His blood also brings me freedom from sin's corruption. Freedom from the cancer of sin. That no longer, when I have the blood of Jesus, the cancer of sin no longer spreads in my life. It has been stopped. Christians, we have got to get this down. We've got to understand, in Jesus Christ, we are no longer victims of sin's power. Oh, I just had a bad week. And I just, you know, I couldn't help it. It's my sin nature. Wrong! Yes, we have a sin nature, but if you are in Jesus, you have been blood washed by Him and the sin has been stopped. It is in remission. You don't have to sin. Why do I? Because you choose to. But you don't have to. Why hasn't anybody become perfect you know, in their behavior after coming to Jesus? Because we're dumb, but we can. <laughs> and, and that's the whole point. We can be sinless. Jesus has made it possible for us to be sinless. No more corruption. He stops the work of sin. And do you realize the effect that Jesus' blood can have on our relationships too? How it can impact us? When I look at you all as brothers and sisters in Christ, I am not looking at flawed people. I am looking at people whose sin has been stopped. Whose sin is in remission. Not a bunch of cancerous people struggling to survive, but a bunch of people who the Bible calls saints. Holy ones. I am looking around, and some of you are a little less holy than others this morning, but you look good, mostly. (laughs) Holy ones. Now, if I could learn to look at every brother and sister in Jesus Christ as a saint, how would that change my relationship with that person? Every one of them. Those that I have been at odds with. If I could look at them as saints of God, blood washed by Jesus Christ. The pure and perfect blood of Jesus covers this person, that person. It would change my heart, wouldn't it? And I would start to... Love them even as I love the Lord. i got to consider these things. I need to think about this in faith. Because apart from the blood of Jesus, none of us are pure. But by His blood, universally sufficient as a transfusion for all people, we, His body, can walk. Can walk in purity. We can choose to do that. We don't have to play the victim anymore. You see why the biblical doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus is non-negotiable? This is not just an interesting story that got the ball rolling. This affects everything. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then His blood is not pure. If His blood is not pure, not only am I not saved, but I could care less about anybody else because we're all in big trouble. 
but His blood is pure. He was born of a virgin. It was the perfect birth of God coming in unified into the flesh of man. Negotiate all that away. And we lose the very thing that cleanses us forever. And what does it require to believe that? Well, it takes what Ahaz lacked in the first place. It takes faith. And we can lay out all the reasoning behind it and we can put out all the logic and we can put out all the biological truth and everything else. But you still come down to faith, which brings me to the last point. We've talked about the basis of the prophecy, the blessed event, the big idea. Finally, the birth of faith. The birth of faith. I could go on all day. Some of you probably could guess that. About the virgin birth of Emmanuel. I mean, we could talk and talk and talk about this and why Jesus came into the world this way. But ultimately, the hearer must have a birthing of faith. If you're going to draw into this, accept Isaiah 7.14 is true. It's going to require faith at some point. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That is the mindset, or better yet, that's the heart set that God has been working on since the beginning. That's what he wants out of people who have chosen to follow him. That's what God is nurturing in you above all other things is faith. Not uninformed belief, but faith that is informed by the truth. We're given the truth, we can see the truth, and we believe in the truth. But what's remarkable to me, and this is what I want to get here, the original recipient of this amazing prophecy was Ahaz. A man of no faith. Some protest that Ahaz couldn't possibly have understood this sign. Of course he couldn't. Because he had no faith. You know what? Even though Ahaz didn't ask for a sign and God gave the sign to the house of David, Ahaz was of the house of David. So as much as this was a larger prophecy for all the house of David, it also was for Ahaz if he had chosen to listen. He had no faith. He wouldn't buy it. I remind you, he had the chance to ask for any sign he wanted, but he rejected it. He had no faith. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19 tells us, The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. The man had no faith. So, the Lord said, all right, Ahaz, if you're going to respond without faith, I'm going to bypass you and I'm going to give a sign for anyone who will have faith. Anyone with faith will see and know this sign. Guess who the first were who had faith for the sign. As it played out in reality, a teenage girl and her betrothed husband. They were the first two to believe it. I mean, really believe it. And understand, let's, let's, let's pull all the, you know, the glitter and the twinkle lights of Christmas away from the story and recognize just for a moment, Joseph and Mary were real people in actual everyday life. There was nothing flashy, nothing special. Sleigh ride was not playing in the background. Nothing going on. When they both received, when Mary received the visitation and Joseph received the, the dream from the angel, nothing going on to indicate that this was special. There were no Target gift cards in the mailbox. There were no wreaths on the stable. I mean, nothing. There were no signs of Christmas anywhere. And this young virgin listens to what the angel says. 
And she says, Luke 2.38, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. That is faith. She believed. First one to believe the sign. Second one, Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. And I think it would be more difficult for him to believe. To be honest, honey, I'm pregnant, but I haven't been with anybody. I'm going to go to the shop. I'm going to have to hammer this one out for a bit. And the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph, and he has a dream. And he awoke from the dream, Matthew 1.24, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name, Joseph called his name Jesus. That's faith. That's faith. Faith worked out in real life. Mary and Joseph had nothing to go on here. No other signs, but the word of the Lord sent by His angel, and so they responded with faith. This was not a Christmas story for them. This was life. And it altered both of their lives for the rest of their lives. See, that's what happens when there's a birth of faith. It changes your life. It alters your direction. I'm going this way and suddenly have a birth of faith, and now I've got a child to deal with. Now I've got a ministry I'm called to. Now I have a direction that I did not plan to go, but this is where God has me. The birth of faith has happened. And it's real life. Faith worked out in actuality. The Lord had given a sign. A sign of His faithfulness to Israel. A sign of His intention to save anyone who would put their lives in the hands of Emmanuel. And so the question for you and for me this morning is very simply, do we have faith? Do we have faith? Faith in the Lord in real life. I'm going to pray for that. Let's bow. Father, some of you have been walking with you for a long time. Perhaps, Lord, there will be some this morning in one of these three services or this afternoon who have never expressed faith in Jesus. Who have never stepped out in belief to say, you know, (laughs) I accept this. I will walk with you. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Christ. And that you came in the world, Emmanuel, God, with us. Father, I just I pray that this will be birthed in the hearts of many this season. But I pray this morning, Lord, that you will give each of us faith for what you've called us to in our lives. Faith to trust you. Faith to listen to you. Faith to hear you. Lord, remove the veil. Remove the blindness. Don't allow the God of this world to blind any of our minds. May we not be unbelieving, but believing You for all things. Lord, I I know, I believe my brothers and sisters have decisions and, and challenges, each one individually, to face this next week or this next month. And I ask You, Father, in my own life, would You give me faith to handle what You have coming? Faith to accept Your Word as the truth. Faith to follow You until I die or You take me home. Lord, increase our faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.